Well, like I mentioned earlier, tonight we're going to look at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, which reads, Your Kingdom Come. So before we do that, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to gather tonight and to hear the preaching of your word um, in the topic form of your kingdom come as it comes down to us in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Lord, I pray that this, can ju- this isn't just an intellectual exercise tonight where we learn some new things, but it can actually be useful to inform us how to pray to you and to encourage us to pray to you as well. Um, please be with me. Um, please help me to speak clearly and to be faithful to your, your word and the gospel. In your name I pray. Amen. I think I've turned myself on. Okay, so we're going to look at Your Kingdom Come, which comes down to us from the Lord's Prayer. It's the second petition next to Hallowed Be Your Name. Uh, The first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer concern God and the rest concern us. So what do you think about in your head when you pray to God, Your Kingdom Come? Do you think about God coming at the end of time to usher in the new heavens and the new earth? Or is there more to it than that? Uh, I thought I'd read to you from the larger catechism. You'd be be surprised that you can actually extract quite a lot of information from those three simple words, your kingdom come. So let me read to you from the larger catechism, which is um, an extraction of the second petition, your kingdom come. So the question is, what do we pray for in the second request? In the second request, which is your kingdom come, we acknowledge ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. And we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, that the gospel spread throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, and that the church may be provided by Sorry, with all the New Testament office bearers and ordinances, cleansed from corruption and countenanced and maintained by the civil authorities. Our prayer is that by these means, the offices of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effective to the converting of those who are yet in their sins and in the confirming and comforting and building up of those who are already converted and that Christ will rule in our hearts here and that by the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever may come quickly. And so we pray that God will be pleased to exert the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best serve to achieve these ends. So as you can see, there's actually quite a lot of things we could talk about tonight from those three simple words. Um, But since I've read that to you, I don't need to talk about all those things. I've just got a selection of things that I thought would be useful for us to talk about. So I want to ultimately think about ways in which we can pray for God's kingdom. That's, that's the ultimate goal of this talk, to, to bring it back to how we pray your kingdom come and what exactly we mean by praying the second petition. Um, but before we do that, I think it's important for us to understand exactly what the kingdom is uh, as it comes down to us in Scripture. So I want to look at what the kingdom of God is in the Old Testament and what it is in the New Testament and then focus on the reign of Christ as king 
and then come back again to what it means to pray, your kingdom come. So beginning in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the phrase, the kingdom of God, is not found. Uh, it has not yet been developed to that point. But the kingdom of God is present in the Old Testament, beginning right in the beginning with Adam, when God made a covenant with Adam after the fall, through to David. But I just want to focus on David and David's kingdom. David's kingdom is the model or the glory days of what Israel longed for when, they, when Christ came in the first century. Uh, David had a small stretch of his life for three chapters in 2 Samuel, which can be considered the glory days or the golden age of David's reign. In chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, we learn about some events that happened in the kingdom of Israel where David was king that basically um, had Israel at its glory days, right? the best it it ever was and what it never could achieve to be again. Um, So David, by that time, was ruling over all the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, In chapter 5, it talks about David reigning over all Israel, which is the first time a king had done that in quite a while and it would never happen again from the point after Solomon. So what happened in in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel is basically two two different aspects of of the king's reign. The first thing David did was that he clearly articulated and protected the borders of Israel. So David engaged in military transactions with the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians and the Edomites. Uh, He killed a lot of people who were previously in the land of Israel and he extracted from them a lot of gold and silver and precious items. But he set up forts and he set up garrisons. So the very first thing David did as king is that he defined the borders of Israel and protected them. That's the first thing. The second thing is then David turned his attention to the land of Israel itself and he appointed different members to be part of his cabinet, his legal cabinet. So he set aside a person to be the military commander, he set aside a person to be the scribe, the recorder, the person who's in charge of foreign affairs, the person who's in charge of the, of the police force and the bodyguards. And he appointed all his sons, which were many at that time, to be ministers within this cabinet. So it wasn't just this one man ruling the whole nation by himself, he had a lot of help, people to take on different aspects of what it meant to be ruling in society. So just incidentally, out of all that gold that David, David took from the, the nations in his wars, uh, it was set aside in a treasury and later on Solomon used that to build the temple. Now another aspect of David, apart from his international conquests and his local justice and administration, is that David as a king was limited by law. Uh, David was not allowed to multiply his horses because horses at that time were a symbol for military strength and power and God didn't want Israel to be a a kingdom that expanded. just wanted to focus on that land that was given to him, the promised land. So David was not allowed to multiply his horses. So when David took lots of horses from those foreign nations, he killed the horses. Second thing David was not allowed to do was multiply his wives. Um, David did not obey this commandment and Solomon did not obey this commandment either. 
Uh, it's actually a really interesting verse in 2 Samuel. Um, in back-to-back instances, David killed the horses but multiplied his wives. And if you go into the law of God, it says, don't, mul- don't multiply your horses, don't multiply your wives. So you can see David's quite picky and choosy about which laws he would obey. But overall, David was a man after God's own heart and although he failed in many ways, he had a general spirit about him that sought to obey God. Some other interesting things about the kingdom of David. Um, There was a separation of powers. David as king could not take on the functions of high priest as his predecessor Saul found out and as Uzziah later on in history, the great king of Judah, found out when he performed sacrifices before God when he took upon himself some high priestly functions. So in the sense, in the nation of Israel, there was a separation of church and state. Perhaps not as developed as in the New Testament, but there was elements of it there in the Old Testament. The king was not the priest, and the priest was not the king. There was also the judiciary. Um, So you know that in the Old Testament law, nothing could be determined except with two or three witnesses. So those two or three witnesses came before the courts. Um, the courts were made up of judges and priests. Um, they had their own authority to execute judgment and for matters that were too hard for them to do in the regions, they would take it up to a higher court. Now another aspect of Old Testament Davidic society is that there were people in society who were not part of the church, of the Old Testament church. So if you were a eunuch, you were an illegitimate child or a foreigner, a foreigner who was not circumcised, you could be a member of Israel, you could be a citizen of Israel, you could partake in all the benefits of the kingdom of Israel, but you could not partake in the, the religious functions. You couldn't um, participate in the feasts and you couldn't participate in the Passover. So in the, in the Old Testament kingdom, there were people who were not Jews who were still part of the kingdom. There were law-abiding king, members of society who could be punished by the law, but they were not Jews in the religious sense. And of course, we know in the New, in the New Testament that there were people in Israel who were not actually off Israel in a, in a saved elect sense. So this is the kingdom of David. This is the the model of the glory days of the kingdom of God that the Jews were anticipating in the first century. And so you have to ask yourself the question, why did God allow this intricate kingdom to be established uh, when it was as a result of the people rejecting God as their king? We learn in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that Israel wanted a king to be like the nations. Uh, I think it's 1 Samuel 6 actually. Uh, They wanted a human king so they could be like everyone else. And God had already anticipated that this would happen because he allowed for it in the law. And he placed limitations on that king so that it wouldn't be as corrupt as the nations. Uh, So why did God allow this to happen? Um, So From the beginning of time, God has been the king. He is the creator and the rightful owner. Uh, He has the law that governs the nations written into our hearts and written into nature and he revealed parts of it to the nation of Israel and he revealed it in Moses. (coughs) The people of Israel did not understand what it meant for God to be their king. So God essentially created the king of Israel 
to be a teacher, to teach them what it meant for God to be their king. The teacher would ultimately teach them and foreshadow the coming of Christ as their king. So that's the great purpose of David's line, is to ultimately teach the people of God what it meant for God to be their king. That's why he permitted a, a human king to reign over Israel. But it wasn't ultimately by God's great design that he had a king over Israel. Similar to the sacrificial system. Uh, it was a, a, in the New Testament it's called a tutor or a teacher to prepare us for the sacrifice of Christ, the once and for all sacrifice. Now God made a, king, a covenant with David. He said that David would never lack a descendant on the throne. And we know that ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But after about 500 years, um, Israel lost its, own, its human king. Israel had rebelled against God for hundreds of years and God finally had enough and he allowed the nation of Israel to be conquered by pagan and foreign kings. So in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, became the king of Israel. And he was their king and he ruled them. And he ruled them quite viciously. He exiled them to Babylon and he, he cut off the majority of the population and they didn't have a, a happy existence in Babylon. And God promised them that that would be temporary and that would be restored to their land. And there, were, there were some lessons to learn in the exile. Um, but ultimately, up until the time of Christ, Israel never again had their own king. Um, from Cyrus the Great to Xerxes, right through to Caesar, there was always a foreign ruler over the nation of Israel. And so, by the time of the first century, Israel longed for the chance to be to have their own self-determination, to have their own king again. But over the 200 years before Christ, Israel started to develop their own theology concerning what the king might look like. And they drew upon the kingdom of David in great length. Uh, in 164 BC, there was what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And that's when Israel gained a moment of independence from the Seleucid Empire uh, when they ousted Antiochus Epiphanes. And what became the great symbol of the revolt, much like the, the swastika of the Nazis or the sickle and hammer of the communists, was the palm branch. Uh, Israelites threw the palm branch when they celebrated their independence in the Maccabean revolt. And the palm branch became the symbol of the Messianic king that was to come. Um, so that kind of brings us into the New Testament. Uh, the prophets, of course, understood that the, the promise that God made to David ultimately pointed forward to the Messiah. Isaiah takes that, that promise that was made to David and he interprets it as a reference to the coming Messiah. Um, same with Jeremiah. Jeremiah talks about the branch of righteousness that is to come. So people put all these things together, they threw in the palm branch and they, they were looking for a Messiah who was to come with great military strength to oust the Romans from power and to allow Israel once again to have its own defined land with a king reigning from Jerusalem, like in the glory days of David. Um, so we come to the New Testament and kingdom is the buzzword of the day. Uh, although we don't hear about kingdom in the Old Testament, kingdom was what everyone longed for in the New Testament. A kingdom was a word much like democracy was in the last 200 years or even reformation in the 15th century. It's what every Jew longed for, that chance for Israel to have its own king, to have its own kingdom again. And Jesus picks up this language. Uh, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the kingdom of God is 
Jesus' talk. Um, and the 83 references to the kingdom of God in the New Testament, uh, 73 of them are directly spoken by Jesus. And in the 157 references to kingdom in the New Testament, 124, I think, 127, something like that, is recorded in the first three Gospels. So it's Gospel talk and it's Christ talk to talk about the kingdom of God. It's the earliest form of Christianity was primarily speaking of the kingdom of God. Now, if you go through each of those references, which I happen to, um, you can kind of summarize them into a few little categories. Um, So the first one is that the kingdom of God is something that you can see, seek, and enter. Um, You know that uh, Nicodemus was told that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God and you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So once you see it with your eyes, the eyes that God has awakened, you may enter the kingdom. So that's something that you do in this lifetime. The kingdom of God is something that affects this life. Uh, The second thing about the kingdom is that it is not of this world because the king of this kingdom sits on the throne of God above this world, in heaven. The kingdom is not primarily of this world. Its starting point is from heaven. And thirdly, the kingdom is something that we're going to inherit at the end of our lifetime. Uh, When we die, we will go into the inheritance that God has prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. So you bring those three things together down into two statements. You've got the kingdom of God as being something that is both now and not yet. The kingdom, of God, the kingdom of God has not been fully consummated and completed, but yet it has started and it is building towards that point. When you think of the kingdom of God, it's important to realize that the kingdom of God is something that is already in action and developing and progressing, and there will be a point in time when the kingdom comes to a completion. Um, and that's what we look forward to when Christ returns. And Christ will return to hand the kingdom over to the Father in its completed form. Now, a big, part, a big part of kingdom theology is the fact that Christ is the king of that kingdom. Now, it's very clear in the New Testament that Christ presented himself to the people as king. Now, we learn this um, for probably the first time in the New Testament on Palm Sunday. Uh, Christ deliberately presented himself as the king to those people by riding the donkey into Jerusalem. Now, he didn't he didn't seat himself upon a mule like the kings of Israel and he didn't seat himself upon a great horse like the kings of the nations but he took upon himself the, the lowly, slow and humble creature of the donkey which is very slow marching its way into town and so Christ presented the nature of his kingdom as the nature of the donkey which is very different to the nature of the Old Testament kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, which operated on power and might. So it's very clear that Jesus presented himself as king to the Jews of his day. And they understood that Jesus was presenting himself as king because they threw palm branches in front of Jesus, acknowledging him as what they thought was the guy who was going to give the Jews their self-determination. But then, of course, they rejected Christ as king once they realized that he wasn't exactly what they imagined him to be. It's very, very obvious that in the rejection of Christ, they were rejecting him as their king. And you pick this up 
in the dialogue between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Uh, so Pilate said to the Jews, if I can find this. All right. Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king, whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So they understood that Jesus was making himself a king. Then Pilate therefore heard that saying. He brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gavatha. And then he said to the Jews, Behold, you're a king. And they cried out, Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So you can see in that dialogue that Pilate was saying, This is your king. The Jews said, No, it's not our king. Caesar's our king. Which was a major blasphemy in itself. And then then Pilate cheekily, when he put Jesus on the cross, placed a sign above Jesus' head saying, Behold the king of the Jews. Now here here hangs the king of the Jews. And he had it in three languages as well, just in case anyone missed that. So it's all about Jesus as king. Jesus was presented as king and he was rejected as king. And we know that Jesus died and he was resurrected and he ascended to sit at the right hand of God. Now in theology we call that the session of God as well as the ascension of God. The session just means to be seated, to sit down. Often the, the action of a king when he was coronated, he would walk through an assembly and he would sit down on a throne and that act of sitting down was the act of showing the people that I am the king and I rule. And so we talk about Jesus being ascending to heaven and sitting down at the right hand of God as the, the coronation of Christ or the session of Christ. Uh, one, one very important thing to point out about Christ's ascension is that unlike it was expected of the people of that day, Christ ascended to the throne of God by going first through uh, crucifixion, through death on a cross. And so that in itself tells us that the nature of Christ's kingdom is very different to the kingdoms of this world. Uh, Christ came to the throne of God as a conqueror and as um, someone who's achieved great success. And the success that Jesus accomplished was that he died for sin and that he conquered death. Uh, so those are the things that make Jesus king. Uh, not because he's the most powerful, although he is that, but because he conquered the greatest enemy known to man and the enemy that is common to all of mankind, death. So those are some important things to realise. Jesus presented himself as king and kingdom language is all over the New Testament. But Jesus ultimately became king by going through the cross and conquering death. And that is what makes him the greatest king and the king of kings and lord of lords. Because he has power beyond any king we can imagine. The power to give life and to take life. So that's the biblical data on the kingdom. Old Testament and New Testament. So let's um, just focus on what it means for Christ to be sitting at the right hand of God and reigning. Because that is something that happens throughout history. We've looked at the events that are in the past, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what do we, when we think about the kingdom of God, we've got to think about what it, what it looks like right now. So Christ reigns basically through two institutions, both of which are temporary. Um, one is the local church and the second is 
um, the government or the state or the civil magistrate, as we read in the Confessions. And both of these have a role to play as Christ reigns from the right hand. Um, both of them will cease to exist when Christ returns. Uh, the local church is not to be confused with the universal church. Everyone who becomes a Christian enters the kingdom of God and will have an inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom of God. But the local church is the place where God's people fellowship, where you can find leaders and deacons and elders, where we participate in the sacraments and where we see the word preached and where church discipline takes place. Uh, these things take place in the local church in its local manifestation. The South Yarra Presbyterian Church is a local church. Uh, the Christians that are in South Yarra are members of both South Yarra and the eternal kingdom of God. But yet people can come to South Yarra Presbyterian Church and they don't actually know the Lord. And so, although they're coming under the reign of Christ while they're here, they are not saved people. Uh, now Jesus said that the local church will come to an end. Uh, we take the Lord's Supper until Jesus comes. So it's something to remind us that there's still work to be done and Christ is still yet to finish his kingdom. But we will continue to do it until he returns. So Christ is the head of his church and he governs his church through various people that have been given jobs to do in the church. Um, the church is the minister of the gospel. Um, the church is the place where people hear the word preached and they come to fellowship with one another, uh, to build each other up and to grow as a body grows. People in the church have different roles and functions, different gifts that God has given the people within the church. And uh, yeah, Christ fills the earth through his church. And the second part of, as we read in Ephesians, that every single name under heaven is under Christ. He rules over every name under heaven. He reigns over um, powers and principalities. I read that in Ephesians chapter 20, uh, 1, verse 21. He sits at the right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Every name that is named. Now this is an important part. Not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. So sometimes people look around the world and they, they see a fallen world with lots of sin and they can't possibly imagine that Christ is reigning right now. And they understand Christ's reign to be something that happens in the future when he returns. But this verse tells us that every power and dominion and principality and might every name that is to be named in this age and also the age to come is under Christ as he sits at the right hand of God. Um, so we can take great encouragement from that. Even though we don't completely understand what God's plan is all the time, we know that he does have a plan. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he, he uses nations and he uses kings, even wicked kings, to bring about his good his goodwill. Um, I'm not going to go into how those two interact, the state and the church, just to point out that Christ is the ruler of them both. Both have a part to play in the mission of Christ's kingdom. 
Now, we learn also from the, New, from the New Testament and the Old Testament about what the kingdom is doing. Uh, is the kingdom set up to fail or is the kingdom set up to um, be unsuccessful in its mission? Or will the kingdom prevail? And this is basically the reason why I pointed out um, some of the, the points about David's kingdom. David had both like an international aspect and, an, and, and a local aspect. David was conquering his enemies and bringing, redrawing those lines on the border. But at the same time, he was administering justice within the kingdom. It's very similar to Christ's kingdom. There's a front. If you imagine Christ's kingdom as a territory, spiritual territory, there's a front uh, where his enemies reside. Uh, every single one of us here tonight were once enemies of Christ, who Christ has conquered and brought into his kingdom. So you've got to think of the kingdom of God in that nature as well. It's a kingdom that is fighting battles, spiritual battles. It's, it's fighting for souls. It's bringing people from enemies and making them sons of God. So the kingdom of God has both an international flavour and, and a domestic flavour as well. Um, we bring people into the kingdom and then we nourish them and build them up. Um, we conquer enemies and we make them our friends. Now, this is a process that will continue to happen until the time is up and Christ has fulfilled the number of people that are to be saved. Uh, we can read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, the kingdom of God will be complete. All the enemies of God will be placed under the feet of Christ. One Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Uh, then comes the end when He, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for He must reign in till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. And when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. So Jesus is not going to put the Father under his feet. That's what it's saying. So that's what we're looking forward to with the kingdom. We're kings and we're a royal priesthood. We're participating with Christ, our king, sitting at the right hand of God. And we are taking part in the kingdom advancing and ultimately coming to fulfillment when Christ returns. Um, now, one way or the other, every single person is going to bow the knee before Jesus, whether it's in this life or in the life to come. We can read about that in Philippians 2. But I won't go into that now. So now I've given you a lot of information about the kingdom of God. How is this going to inform us in how we pray to God, especially the second petition, your kingdom come. Well, I've got three points. The first is that um, the kingdom of God is our number one priority. So when we pray to God, we have to make sure that the kingdom of God is the first thing in our mind. Uh, we may have a lot of interests that we want to happen in our life, but we have to sacrifice those and put those aside and make sure that the kingdom is our highest priority. When the kingdom contradicts our own desires, we know that we must put the kingdom first. And so that's the first thing. The kingdom is always the highest priority in whatever manifestation that takes in your life. Um, by doing so, we're acknowledging that Christ is the highest priority in our life as our king. Christ reigns over us. Uh, we are commanded to obey him as our Lord and king. 
Uh, we are to seek to keep his commandments, not to be saved, but as a response of being saved. And when we make the kingdom of God our highest priority, we make Christ our highest priority, and we make the law of Christ one of our highest priorities in our sanctification. So that's the first thing we do when we pray. We make sure we put Christ first. We acknowledge who Christ is in our lives and we respect him and fear him for that. The second thing, when we pray, your kingdom come. This is something that um, Calvin and his institutes talked about. He has a whole chapter on um, what the second petition of the Lord's Prayer means. Basically, he spends a page, and that's all, speaking about what it means for us to, put, to, to say to God, your kingdom come. And Calvin talks only about um, what it means for us as believers, as individuals, to say that God's kingdom is coming. And that is to first of all recognize that there is such a thing as sin in our lives, um, that Satan has a presence in this world, and in, even in our lives and other people's lives, and that because we're, we have sin in our lives, we still have Satan's reign over us. And so a major part of praying your kingdom come, Lord, is asking God to put to death those parts of our lives that have not yet been handed back to God. Parts of our lives that we've still kept for ourselves and that Satan still has rule over us in. And so when we come to God to pray, we're acknowledging our sin and we're asking for God to to destroy the sin in our lives. Um, when we pray your kingdom come, we're, we're weeping over our sin. Um, we're hating our sin. And we're asking God to, well, not only forgive us, but to help us overcome our sin. And finally, the third aspect of saying your kingdom come is that the kingdom will continue to advance. Uh, that enemies will be made sons of God. Uh, we can pray for a particular people in our lives that we know have not yet bowed the knee to Christ and we pray that they will and that there may be a gospel revival in our land and that more and more people can come to acknowledge God as king. Um, so it's a missionary prayer. We're praying for missions to succeed and for the gospel to go out. Now, not all missions succeed in the way that we envision that they will. Um, sometimes God uses the gospel to harden people's hearts because he is not determined to save them. But still our prayer that they will succeed. It's not in our power for them to succeed, but it's, it's our prayer that they will succeed optimistically. Um, so just to point out one final thing, when you look through the references of the kingdom in the New Testament, there's 157 references. In Matthew, there's the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Um, he uses it three times, the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's slightly different to how the other writers phrase the kingdom of God. And I think that's very important for us to remember what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is successful and powerful because it's a gospel kingdom. Uh, the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins and he has made us right with God. And he changes our lives from within, our core. He changes our identity and then changes our outward actions. Um, so we have to remember that that is the, the force and power of the kingdom of God. It is a gospel kingdom. Uh, it doesn't 
um, force us to live in a certain way by externalities, goes right into the deepest parts of our soul and, and changes us there and ultimately changes the way we live as a result of that. Um, so that's what we remember as well when we pray, Your kingdom come. We're praying for God to continue the work that has already begun in our hearts. All right, amen, and praise be to God for the work that he has done in us and in our church and in our land. All right, so we're going to sing a final song. Feel confident to play it? You'll do, it, you'll do well. So it's um, hymn 400.